The word we're going to pay attention to today comes from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 10 through 25. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God that you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Let us pay attention to the Lord's word today. It's an honor to preach the word of God to you this morning, friends. Thank you for the way you are a consistently hungry church. One of the the graces on this church, I hope you recognize this and celebrate the way I do, which makes much of the Lord, not us, ultimately, is, is we are... A hungry church. You're a hungry people. Um, I've had a lot of fun teaching our membership class the last couple weeks, being in it when Caleb's been teaching. And I just consistently have heard folks say, one of the things we are so grateful for about Kingsway is that we, we hear the word of God week after week. And I don't, I don't share that with you to toot our own horn. I, sh- I share that with you because that's, that's God's kindness to us. That, that's his grace at work in our midst. Let's not take for granted the fact that he's made us a people who will come hungry for the word of God. That appetite is a gift from the Lord. Father, would you satisfy that appetite this morning? When we come to your table, 
You don't turn us away and say kitchen closed. You feed us with the richest affair. Do that again today, I ask. In your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. One of, one of the reasons we so desperately need God's word is because there are a lot of challenges in the Christian life. A whole lot of challenges. I think if I, if I brought many of you up here on stage, put a microphone in front of your face, you could probably give us a catalog of challenges. Uh, the, the world pulls us away from the Lord, doesn't it? Uh, desperate to convince you that you can find life in something or someone other than him. Our, our sinful desires tempt us to pretend that we are God instead of submitting to the authority of the one true God. Uh, that the great enemy of our souls, Satan himself, he, he's constantly seizing opportunities to, to sow division, to sow unbelief. He, he's busy attempting to blind our eyes to the beauty and goodness of Jesus. A lot of our spiritual challenges often come in the form of difficult circumstances. So I think of infertility or an ailing body that, that make it easy to question God's love or, or you have a spouse that refuses to change or, or a child whose heart remains far from the Lord that makes it easy to, to question his wisdom or you have a mountain of debt or, or a promotion that never materializes, even though you've spent three decades working for the company, and the guy that just got that job has spent three years. It's easy to question God's power. You just have abounding adversities in a fallen world, trouble without and trouble within that test us, try us, and squeeze us, friends. But, but there is another sort of test that I have not mentioned, that looms large both in the pages of Scripture and our present spiritual experience. And that is the test of prosperity. The test of prosperity, the, the test of material blessing. What did all those adversities I just rehearsed have in common? Something was not present that we desperately want. What does the test of adversity consist of? Things we want, we don't have. What does the test of prosperity consist of? Lives that are filled with stuff we want and stuff that we like. It's a test of material blessing. And at the end of Deuteronomy, right before Moses dies, fast forwarding to chapter 28 here, he perceives a coming day, Deuteronomy 48, 28, 47, when Israel will no longer serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. I see a day coming, Israel, when you're not going to do that anymore. Your, your obedience is going to be half-hearted and begrudging. You're going to fall away from serving the Lord. Why would they do such a thing? Well, Moses gives the reason in seven words. Look at the end of the verse. Because of the abundance 
of all things. Israel, day's coming when you're going to fall away from Yahweh. But it's not going to be because of your adversities. It's going to be because of your prosperity. And Jesus doubles down on the same thing in Mark 10, 23. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why, why were they amazed? Because in their, their worldview, their mindset, their outlook, if you have wealth, if you have riches, if you have prosperity, you are what? You are blessed. You're living a good life. That, that's where it's at. That's, that's what the kingdom of God involves. Let's get the Romans out of here. Let's get the Messiah in here. Let's, let's live it up with Jesus. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. His point is not that it's really hard. His point is that it's impossible. But but Matthew, you say to yourself, I don't know who you're talking to, but I'm not rich. I'm not Bill Gates. I'm not Warren Buffett. There's not much money left over. After making a car payment, covering our mortgage, paying for the kids' school and sports, taking our annual beach trip, taking the wife out to dinner, keeping my wardrobe updated, saving for retirement, remodeling our kitchen, paying for all my medical care, and sending financial support to family members overseas. Friend, if you live in the United States and you have your own bed to sleep in, and you have a private means of transportation, and three meals a day, and clean water, and medical care when you need it, and a steady job above minimum wage, you are among the richest people on planet Earth. And if that's hard to believe, you need to travel more. <laughs> or at least watch some more National Geographic specials. <laughs> if, you're, if you're sitting in this climate-controlled room and you have a smartphone on which you are taking notes for this sermon and doing nothing else, <laughs> while you are recording a Manchester United soccer game on your DVR at home, sure, you're not Bill Gates but you are among the richest people on planet Earth. And here's the scary thing about that. Because everyone around you is too, it just feels normal. Why do we even say things like, I'm not Bill Gates? Because our assessment of our prosperity is pervasively comparative. We just compare ourselves. And when we're surrounded by prosperity, and we have prosperity, it doesn't feel particularly abnormal. It just feels like comfort, convenience, and security. 
It feels like enjoying the reward of your labor. Matthew, I'm just getting what I deserve. I work for that. Adversity is a test, but prosperity, that's, that's the good life, man. What, what could possibly be difficult or challenging about a healthy body and a strong retirement portfolio? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord lets us know. <laughs> the setting is important. Israel's about to enter the promised land of Canaan. It's been about 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, adversity. And the Lord is about to bring them into a land that he describes as flowing with milk and honey. Now, if you hear that and you think, I don't want to have anything to do with anything that is flowing or oozing with milk and honey, that's a symbolic image, especially in an agrarian society of untold riches, incredible wealth. You can put your favorite iPhone model into that symbol. And so Moses warns Israel, and the the Lord warns us, they, they are, as it were, standing on the precipice of the greatest prosperity and abundance they have ever known. And he says, full stop. I have a warning for you. Nothing has more power to undermine your single-minded devotion to God that Deuteronomy 6.5 requires and Caleb preached on last Sunday than prosperity. That nothing is more pregnant, Israel, King's way, with power to destroy your soul than your prosperity. And, and if we adopt an uncritical attitude toward our prosperity, then it's like sauntering willy nilly through a minefield. That's not wise. (laughs) That's foolish. So be careful. Be be, be careful when life is good, even more than when life is difficult. Okay, Matthew, careful to do what? Well, to do this, okay? To remember the grace of God so that you hold fast to God. Be careful in prosperity To remember the grace of God so that you will hold fast to God in your prosperity. Why do we need to remember God's grace? Which is what? His undeserved favor. Well, Moses gives us several reasons in here, okay? And each one of these is designed to help us pass the test of prosperity. So what do we need to remember about the grace of God that will help us pass, not fail the test of prosperity? Reason thing number one, we need to remember grace is the ultimate explanation for our abundance. Verses 10 to 15. It's the ultimate explanation for our abundance. But Moses begins by inviting Israel, look at verse 10, to imagine all the blessings that are right around the corner. Blessings that that point to the covenant faithfulness of God. Verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not 
plant. <laughs> What's the pattern? <laughs> that, that God delights to give good gifts to his people that we do not deserve and have not earned. That's the point. In other words, he delights to lavish us with grace. That's what grace is. Yahweh took cities, houses, cisterns, vineyards, and olive trees. What's all that and more? The, The choicest fruits of ancient Near East civilization. He took them from the Canaanites as an expression of his righteous judgment and gave them to Israel as an expression of his amazing grace. And what's the oh-so-tempting narrative at exactly that point for them and us? We built that. We filled that. We planted that. I showed up in this country, nearly broke Williams, and now look at me. I'm the prototype of a self-made woman. I, I am the American dream come true. And it's like, Cue the fireworks and the personal responsibility applause track. You know what I mean? And therein lies the danger. Because friend, no matter how hard you've worked, no matter how much you've sacrificed, no no matter how many years you've studied, no matter how many shifts you've stayed late or how many wise choices you have made, unlike all those other men that I thank God I'm not like, Deuteronomy 8.18 tells the true story. It is the Lord your God who gives power to get wealth. Period. James 1.16, do not be deceived. Do, do not look at all your prosperity, friend, that you have right now. Do not look at that and be deceived. Do not, do not see what is not there. See what is truly there. What is truly there, my beloved brothers? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Or in the searing words of Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What what do you have? What do you have that you did not receive? Anyone here got anything? That you didn't receive? Paul asked. And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If if your life is full of blessings, especially material blessings, there is only one explanation, my friend. God Almighty has been gracious to you. That's it. Grace is the ultimate explanation for your abundance. And and, and listen, that is not what this pastor believed in his heart when he was a young man. Not at all. As a young man, I was convinced that that my diligence 
my, my moral discipline, my linguistic ability, my math skills, my attention to detail, my hunger to learn was the reason I experienced so much success. God, I thank you that I'm not like lesser men who cram before finals and turn in sloppy papers and whose clothing doesn't match or coordinate and they forget their assignments and they don't polish their shoes and they can't manage their time and they never clean their car and they seem entirely disinterested in just working hard anywhere. That was me. And it's easy to look back and see that pride, you know? That's not pretty. But it's really hard to see it in ourselves in the moment. So test yourself, friend, right now, okay? This week, test yourself. When blessings abound, in the word of, look at verse 11, the words of verse 11, when you eat and are full, do your eyes fill with tears of gratitude? Or, look at verse 12, do you forget the Lord? Which one is it? Do you pat yourself on the back? Or do you make Psalm 103 verse 1 your cry? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Because all we have is the gift of grace. And the ease, think about this, the ease with which we forget that, that grace grace explains our abundance, the ease with which we forget that reveals the extent to which we have loved God for our sake, not his. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we look to him, we cry to him to, to bring an end to our adversities, Right? How many prayer requests you've prayed for or in some way, Lord, we got an adversity here. Do something about this adversity. We, we look to him to bring an end to our adversity, to deliver the better life, the goodies that we want. But once we have them, once our material needs are satisfied, we move on. Appreciate that, God. You, you definitely did your thing. Really grateful for that. Served your purpose. Okay. It's... And to illustrate this, we, we think of God as a spiritual DoorDash driver in some ways, you know? I appreciate the help. I'll gladly pay the delivery fee, throw a few prayers your way when I'm hungry. But when you ring the doorbell, I'm not interested in a conversation with you, driver. I just want the Chipotle. <laughs> you know? So if you, if you read your Bible and go to church and pray and do all the things you think God wants you to do when, when life is hard, but everything just rather quickly goes out the window when life is easy, the problem isn't that you're busy. The problem is that Jesus is not your treasure. He's your errand boy. And that's a grievous mistake to make, friend. 
because you owe your very life to him. You, you wouldn't be here, Christian. In this room. I mean, think about who you once were. I know so many of your stories. It's a privilege. You wouldn't be here, let alone able to enjoy good things in your life, maybe not even alive today, were it not for the mercy of your God. That's the explanation for your abundance. It's grace. We don't, we don't deserve that. We, we deserve his judgment on account of our sin. So, so why are we still here? Why, why, why do any of us have good things? Well, if you're, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, it's because of God's common grace. Matthew 5, 45. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Common grace. If you're a Christian, why are you here? Why do, why do you have good things? It's because of God's saving grace. The unmerited favor he's lavished on you in Jesus. Romans eight thirty two. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. For you, Christian, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why, why did Israel experience the good life in the land of Canaan? Why, why did they get the good life in the land of Canaan? Look at verse 12. Because the Lord, what? Brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's why they were here. Christian, why do you already enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? And will soon enjoy untold material blessing in the new heavens and the new earth. And why, I ask, do some of those future blessings invade the present in seasons of prosperity? Here's why. Because the Lord brought you out of the land of slavery to sin and death through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why. The grace of God flowing down from a hill called Calvary is the only explanation for your abundance. And the opposite of forgetting the Lord, forgetting that, is fearing the Lord. What's that? A a heart filled with trembling awe, amazement, wonder at the grace God's just poured out on your life. Look at verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Stand in awe, be amazed by, filled with gratitude toward him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear that the fear of the Lord says, look at all that God has done for me. Amazed by grace, I serve him. Amazed by grace, I remain loyal to him. In contrast, when we forget the grace of God, when we're not fearing the Lord and awe of him and his mercy toward us, we just sort of disintegrates into this spiritual religious nice guy of little account. Losing sight of God's grace is the first step toward apostasy toward falling away from the Lord. Why? Because we're all worshipers. We're we're all hardwired to serve and swear 
satisfy something (laughs) or someone, right? To satisfy our souls. You do not have the ability as a human being to be godless. So when we forget the Lord, we're not just forgetting the Lord. We invariably, having forgotten him, embrace a false god. We have to, because we're worshipers. It could be a possession. It could be your physical health. It could be a hobby. It could be your success at work. It could be your home improvement projects. I mean, the possibilities are endless, which is why Moses warns in verse 14, look there, you shall not go after other gods. The gods of the peoples who are around you that, that make it all look so plausible and so normal and so you deserve it. His point is that idolatry is the guaranteed consequence of forgetting the Lord. And idolatry is a really big deal because it's an act of betrayal. When you, think about this, when you build your life around getting the next promotion instead of loving and serving God, you're you're not just exchanging, friend, a sort of exchange my parents' religious philosophy for an approach to life that works better for me. Just ditching one philosophy for another. You're not doing that. It's personal. You're rejecting, stiff-arming the living God. And if you spurn him, he doesn't, doesn't play the wounded boyfriend card and and just languish in a heavenly puddle of self-pity. No, he's jealous for his glory. He's not going to sit idly by while you rewrite the story of your life to put yourself at the center instead of him. Oh, that's an interesting edit. If that works for you, great. No, no. Verse 15 warns you what will happen if you forget the Lord, if you refuse to acknowledge his grace as the ultimate explanation for your abundance and begin serving other gods, then what? The anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will destroy you from off the face of the earth. Oh, come on, Matthew. Really? Isn't that a little harsh? That's like that angry preacher I grew up listening to. He always talked like that. Friend, God's anger is an expression of his righteous judgment. Justice demands that God respond when you denigrate his honor. Justice demands that because there is no one more worthy or more glorious or more worthy of your honor than God which means there will be consequences both in this life and in the life to come if you refuse to remember his grace is the ultimate explanation for your abundance and fear him and serve him and swear by him. So remember, friend, grace is the explanation for your abundance. That's why a prayer of thanksgiving at a meal, what could this look like? Before you eat, isn't just a box to check. That's a soul 
teaching moment? Or, or why, why do I take my boys to Chick-fil-A in August to celebrate the anniversary of God giving us a home? I want them to know it came from him. Even as they're eating waffle fries. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's why going out of your way in public and in private settings to specifically thank people who have served you, especially in the church, all around us, is so important. You know, that, that's why sharing testimonies of, of God's work in your life is so critical. It, it's not about adopting, you know, how many bumper stickers, is, you know, could this become, you know, the whole attitude of gratitude thing, glass half full. No, it's not what I'm talking about. It's about having the humility to see God's grace and give thanks for God's grace. Why? Because an ungrateful Christian is a contradiction in terms. Because all we have, we owe to the grace of God. It's the only explanation. That's the first reason we have to remember God's grace so we hold fast to him. Here's the second. We're going to pick up the pace. Grace is the sure reward of our faith. Why do we need to remember God's grace? So we pass the test of prosperity. One, because it's the only explanation for our abundance. Two, because it's the sure reward of our faith. When Israel forgot God's grace in the past, follow me here, she stopped trusting the Lord for the grace she needed in the present and in the future. There's a connection. And that's exactly what happened decades earlier in a place called Massah. And Exodus 17 tells us what happened. The people, listen, quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Leadership's not easy. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with, with thirst? And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the, the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What's going on? When we forget his benefits, past grace, we quickly fall into grumbling and complaining and unbelief, don't we? It's not just like, oh, well, you know, I forgot. I should work on remembering. You forget their implications. We survey the landscape of our life and, and we conclude nothing good to see over here. No water in this corner of the world, my corner of the world. We, we, we create our own test for God, Sit, sitting in judgment over him, summoning him to the court of human reason, questioning, charging him with injustice. If you're really loving, give me a child. If you're really wise, make them pay. If you're really sovereign, heal my body. The problem with Massah was a lack of faith in the Lord. An unbelief rooted in what? Forgetting the grace that had brought them safely thus far. 
And we do the same thing when we forget the gospel, brothers and sisters. When we, instead of saying, what's this look like practically? Instead of saying, you know, we, we sing this in the, one, of the, one of our songs. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. What do we sing? Where is his grace and goodness known? And whether you give me water right now. <laughs> you know? And then, if he fails to measure up, ding dong, yes? Hi God, no water. We refuse to trust and obey him. I'll only play by your rules if you give me what I want. Heed heed the warning in verse 16, my friend. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As you tested him at Massah, what, what should you do instead? Instead of testing him, trust him. And, and demonstrate your trust by diligently obeying his commands. Verse 18, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. The, the obedience commanded in verse 18 is fueled by the faith in verse 19 that God will do what he has promised he will do. So so what sort of future grace could Israel expect to receive from the Lord in response to the obedience of faith? Well, first, Israel could expect holistic blessing touching every aspect of her life. It will go well with you, Moses says. Friend, Jesus makes the same promise in John 10.10 to all who are willing to trust and obey him. I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Here's the second grace Israel could expect to receive from the Lord in response to the obedience of faith. It was the joy of living in God's place. Think about that. You will take possession of the good land, Moses says. God's land, God's place. Friend, today, God brings those who trust and obey Jesus into his place in an immeasurably greater way. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How does, he, how does he bring us into his place? Well, three ways. He makes us his individual dwelling place by filling us with the spirit. He unites us to his corporate dwelling place, the church, through covenant membership. And he brings us home to heaven, our eternal dwelling place with God, a land where, where righteousness dwells and sin and death are no more. Then and now, God lavishes his unmerited favor on those who are willing to trust him by keeping his commands. That's Moses' point. If you want to experience God's grace, then do what? You have to trust and obey God's word. We, we often try to reverse that equation. Can we be honest about this? You know, we, we bargain with God. We, we say things like, Lord, I'll give generously if you give me a better paying job. Or I'll walk in sexual purity 
if you increase my spouse's sexual desire. Or, Lord, give me more gifts of grace, and then I'll decide to obey your commands. Bring, bring me into the promised land, and then I'll decide to follow you. Friends, that's not biblical faith. That's not faith. Biblical faith steps out in obedience of God's commands because we trust him to do what he has said he will do. Hebrews 10.35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, your faith, your trust, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, continued faith, continued trust, expressed through obedience, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. If you want to experience the fulfillment of God's grace in your life, what do you have to do? Express your trust in the Lord by obeying his commands. Why? Because grace is the sure reward of our faith. Here's the last thing we need to remember about God's grace. So we pass the test of prosperity. It's the enduring motive for our obedience. The motive for our obedience. Look at verse 20. There is some crazy good parenting going on here, which is both convicting for me as a dad and remarkably applicable whether or not you're talking to one of your own kids. He sees this day when the children of Israel will ask their parents, verse 20, they're in Canaan, milk and honey, prosperity everywhere. It's been a few years. Hey dad, what, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? And if you think, I don't have any kid nor have I ever met a kid who would talk like that, let me give you a translation. Dad, why in the world are we doing all this Christian stuff? Why is what God says so important? Why, why should I listen to what he commands instead of doing what I want? Why, why, why should he be my God and not just your God? I mean, if that works for you, you do you. How do many Christian parents often answer? Look at verse 24. We go right from 20 to 24. Why should you obey? Because God tells you to. The Lord God commanded us to do all these statutes. And last time I checked the word us, son, it included you. <laughs> Why? Because God says. It's like the religious version of, because I say so. <laughs> that is not what God instructs through Moses the parents around him to say. At least not first. Because there's a reason verse 24 comes after verses 21 through 23. I hope you know the Bible isn't just this jumble of, it could all be put in whatever order. There's meaning in the structure. So what should we say when a friend or family member asks the same question? What, what's up with all this God stuff? What, what's the chief reason, the primary motivation for obeying God's commands? Look at verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, to your friend, to your neighbor, to your sibling, to your coworker, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt 
with a mighty hand, son. He redeemed us. He rescued us. God has been gracious to us, son. That is why we keep his commands. Brothers and sisters, how much more gracious is the gospel of Jesus Christ? That the redemption God accomplished by rescuing us out of slavery, not to just some bad guy Egyptians with whips, but to sin and death. So what do we say to our sons and daughters today? Son, we're all sinners. Chained in a darkness of our own making. Separated from God, deserving nothing but his judgment. But son, God brought us out. He died and rose from the grave to make dead hearts like mine alive. And son, he can make your heart alive too. This is harder to preach once you have kids. Do it, Lord. He can make you alive too. If you are willing, if you're willing to trust and obey Him. Buddy, don't obey God's commands to try to earn his favor. Dad obeys God's commands because God's favor has been poured out on Daddy and Jesus. Okay, we need water. I tried. Guess what kind of conversations I have all week long? We don't obey, boys, to make God gracious. We obey because our God is full of grace, abounding in steadfast love. We, we obey because of the gospel, guys. That's my answer. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. What's Paul's point? That, that grace doesn't remove the necessity of obedience. Rather, grace is the very thing that enables and empowers and calls forth our obedience. If obedience is the car, grace is the gas. It's the engine. It, it's the, the grace that God's poured out on us in Jesus that makes us eager and able to please him. That's Moses, answer. So when you're admonishing your kids, please take care. Be careful. When, when you're exhorting a friend, take, take care. Take, take care, what's the point? To root every call to obey God in the grace of God. 
That's the command. Start, start with the gospel. Start with God's power to redeem. Start with the way the spirit delights to take dead hearts and make them alive. To, to use fancy theological language, ground every imperative, do this for God, in a gracious indicative because God did this for you in Christ. Three examples. This isn't abstract or theoretical. Why should you honor God by pursuing sexual purity? 1 Corinthians 6.19 You were not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why, why should you give sacrificially? To the advance of the gospel, the needs of the saints, 2 Corinthians 8.9 for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich in love and good works toward the Lord and his people. Why, why should you persevere, friend? But does it get any more practical? Why, why should you persevere in, in battling all manner of besetting sins, anger, impatience, pride, selfishness, envy? Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that this persistent body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to that sin. For one who has died with Christ has been set free from that sin in Christ. Now we could keep going, right? What do they all prove? Grace is the enduring motive for our obedience. That's the point. When the Lord tells us, in conclusion, verse 24, to do all these statutes, I wonder if part of you wonders, okay, I'm in Canaan, prosperity, and why can't God just leave me alone to let me enjoy all my stuff? Why is he always knocking on the door, wanting more from me? I'll let you, I'll holler if I need you. If my goodies break, I'll call, promise. What's God's angle? Look at verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good. <laughs> Always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. What's God's angle? Why is he knocking on your door? Why, why are you experiencing the conviction of sin why, right now? Friend, why do those who love you enough to speak the truth to you continue to say, stop going this way? Follow Jesus. You think those are easy conversations to have? They're not easy to... Initiate, they're not easy to receive. So why do we do them? Why, why does God keep knocking? Why must we do all these statutes and commands? Because God is eager to do good to you, my friend. He's, he's eager to give you life and, and preserve your life. Psalm 31, 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. You know, at the end of football games, when your team wins and, and what do all the big guys do? They try to be sneaky about this and come up behind the coach. What are they carrying? The igloo, right? And they wait for it. They wait for it. And they're just like, Boom! The poor guy. 
oh, you know. Oh, I always think like the older the coach, please don't have a heart attack. You know, but, but, but picture that moment in your mind. Friend, oh, how abundant is his goodness. What a full, brimming igloo which you have stored up on your shoulders, on the edge of your seat, ready to dump out on those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. That, that's what compels the Lord to give the law to Israel. That's what compels Jesus to say, follow me. O- obedience isn't some burdensome addition to our salvation, like the fine print in a spiritual contract. No, it's the divinely ordained means by which we experience the life of God. And, and why is the path of obedience to God, you ask? The path of life. Well, because doing all these statutes requires trust and dependence and submission and surrendering our will to his. Obedience is the path of life because obedience leads us in the path of rightly relating to God in a faith-filled way so we can receive and experience the life that's only found in him. Obedience is how God keeps us faithful to the end so that we can be saved on the final day. In other words, do not fear in verse 25 that the righteousness Moses describes is a sneaky work of merit or a means of achieving redemption. It's what? The right response to the grace of redemption. Remember God's grace, friends. If you're in prosperity, you want to pass the test, remember God's grace because grace is the ultimate explanation for your abundance. It's the sure reward of your faith And it's the motivation for our obedience. Don't forget the Lord. Remember his grace. Tis grace hath brought you safe thus far, friend. And it is grace that will lead you home. Let's pray. Father, we owe our everything to you. And yet how quickly in prosperity... You shrink in our view. Lord, forgive us. We want to pass the test of prosperity. We don't want our abundance to lead us away from the living God. So Lord, Holy Spirit, help us remember your grace. Help us to remember your grace so we can hold fast to you, the God of grace. We want to be ruled by a gracious God. We want to hold fast to our gracious God. We ask you for increased faith that trust you do have future grace waiting for those who believe and follow you. We ask you for greater humility that when we receive blessing, we we would say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And we ask you for a greater strength that our labor of obedience would not be without the life and power 
Oh, we need power that comes from obeying because you have lavished grace on us. Lord, make us a people who gladly say, you want the story of my life? You want to know why I'm holding fast to Jesus? It's all because of grace. Let's stand and sing.